0: Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 43 Salem, Massachusetts. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft. Last time and last year, we covered the opening moves of England's colonisation efforts, what drove them, how badly they failed, and how footholds in the New World were finally established at great financial and human cost. We specifically looked at New England, the cluster of colonies situated on the northeast coast of the modern day United States. Through war and some shrewd political manoeuvring from New England politicians, the colonies withstood conflict with their new Indian neighbours as well as the political turbulence of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. By the time of the Glorious Revolution, however, unrest had been growing against James Seventh and II's unpopular reforms of the colonies, as well as his pro-Catholic sympathies. When Parliament invited William and Mary to usurp the throne, the New England colonists violently ejected the former king's officials. Many of the colonies returned to their previous charters of government with the exception of Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay colony. Plymouth had never had a royal charter, while Massachusetts Bay had had hers revoked some time before the Jacobean reforms. Despite being petitioned by Cotton Mather, officials in London combined these two colonies, as well as territories from elsewhere, into a single province of Massachusetts Bay in 1691. The colony became royal, gained a crown-appointed governor, and ceased to limit the colonists' right to vote in the colonial assembly on grounds of religion. These were significant political changes, and greatly weakened the Puritan hold on the colony. The newly appointed governor was Sir William Phipps, a Massachusetts native who had been with Increase Mather in London during the petitioning of the king and queen. Sir William and Mather both arrived in Boston in May of 1692 to find the colony in the middle of the largest witch panic it had ever and would ever see. Even while Sir William undertook his inauguration as the new colony's first governor, over a hundred people were sitting in prison awaiting trial for witchcraft. As Sir William would later learn, the craze had begun in the small village of Salem, Massachusetts. Over the last three centuries, there have been countless theories about the Salem witch trials, and today's episode will be attempting to navigate them all, and explain why the Salem witch panic even occurred. I will be blunt about one in particular, the theory that the village of Salem was afflicted by ergotism. The theory, proposed in 1976 by Linda Caprell, was that the villagers had consumed cereal crops contaminated with the ergot fungus. Ergotism manifests in seizures, nausea, vomiting, and some forms of psychosis, among others, and Capral pointed to records of the trials that list the symptoms of possession which match the symptoms of ergotism. Combined with the fact that rye, a crop often afflicted by the ergot fungus, was farmed in large quantities in the region, and you have an airtight case. The Salem villagers were victims of inadvertent mass poisoning. Except, not quite. Despite how popular this theory of poisoned crops is outside of the field, if you'll pardon the pun, Capral's theory almost immediately faced criticism, and has now been largely dismissed by academics. The main problem of the theory, of many, is that the accusers don't actually suffer the symptoms of ergot poisoning. Or at least, they only suffer some of the symptoms. The accounts describe the accusers suffering from seizures and hallucinations, which are symptoms of ergotism. What the accounts don't mention are the other symptoms of ergotism, which come long before the hallucinations and the convulsions, and are not subtle. The doctors and preachers that recorded the events in New England would have probably noticed and written down if the afflicted were suffering from vomiting, diarrhoea, or their limbs started rotting from gangrene, but they didn't. Another problem with the theory of fungus-infected food is that we would expect to see symptoms throughout households, as they shared food. Instead, the afflicted were individuals linked by social and political reasons and over a wide area. It would be convenient, almost surgical, for ergot-infected food to only be eaten by certain people in different communities. The other problem is the way that the symptoms actually manifested. If it were a poisoning, the afflicted would suffer consistently. Instead, what we see in the Salem trials is the symptoms only manifesting at certain cues. The accuser is fine, a suspect is led into the room, the accuser begins to convulse, the suspect is removed, and the accuser is fine again. This isn't how a chemical poisoning behaves, but it is how knowingly fraudulent witchcraft trials had occurred before and after Salem. And it's also how people, utterly convinced in their own bewitchment, behave when they believe they have been attacked by the devil. Just think of our episodes on Stuart England. There were multiple high-profile cases of supposed witchcraft victims suffering seizures in the presence of their attacker only to either admit that they'd made the whole thing up to target their attacker, or that they genuinely believed that their attacker had bewitched them. There are ways to attempt to explain away these flaws in the theory, but there is, in my opinion, no real reason to believe that the panic at Salem was caused by anything as exceptional as mass poisoning. The sheer tenacity of the ergotism theory is a prime example of something that struck me while researching this topic. There is an implied difference, at least in the popular imagination, between the Salem trials and those that had occurred in Europe. Salem appears to be seen as somehow distinct from the many other witch trials we've already looked at over the course of this podcast. Salem surely couldn't be like the trials in Europe, so there had to be a special reason. Perhaps that is why the ergotism theory has such staying power. It's a single, simple, relatively blameless explanation for the Salem trials, based on seemingly inviolate science. But that doesn't mean it's right. Salem, as we shall see, shares much more in common with trials in Old England and continental Europe than not. As Professor Virginia Dijon Anderson writes, quote, "'Salem's witch hunt was notable for its size.' But not its pattern of development. End quote. So, while the outbreak of the trials hits many of the same notes we've heard before, the specific circumstances that Massachusetts found itself in are of cause for interest. We'll begin with one that has been present quite regularly throughout the episodes on early modern England Puritan zealotry. This is also one of the more famous theories for the Salem trials, but unlike ergotism, this actually holds water, in my opinion at least. The Puritan clergy, its decline hastened by the political reforms enforced by London, was still a powerful force in New England society. The ministers preached of the dangers posed by Satan in the material realm. As we saw with the Witchfinder General, so-called Puritans were, in the words of Karen Armstrong, latter-day crusaders that saw Satan everywhere. It is no surprise that the same theological school that fueled the careers of Matthew Hopkins and John Stern was at the center of another witch panic 50 years later. Members of the church were expected to keep watch over their fellows to ensure they did not fall to temptation or sin, and relied on their fellow congregationalists to do the same for them. As we touched on last time, the arrival of other religious dissidents was not a welcome event. Quakers in particular were unwelcome, with exile and execution waiting for those who found themselves in Puritan territory. The quaking that gave them their name allowed them to fall easy victim to claims of demonic possession. As their legal protections and preferences towards Puritanism were removed under the Tyrannical Dominion and the New Charter, fears grew among the Puritan ministry. They looked back to the times of their parents and grandparents, and saw an obvious decline. The church, their church, had been supreme in the new world. Now, they had been made to open their society up to other denominations. That these religions were still broadly Protestant was small comfort. They weren't the right type of Protestant, and they were still a threat with their proselytizing. Gone were the days when the congregation of the church governed Massachusetts. The reforms of James had struck at their political independence. Their ancestors had subjugated their neighbouring Indians in war. They were suffering under repeated raids from natives. For the ministry, each of these crises was not merely mundane in origin. They were caused and supported by Satan. As Professor Godbeer puts it, from this perspective, the Witch Crisis of 1692 was not an isolated event, but the climax of a devilish assault upon the region." Quote. Now, I have to be careful not to oversell Puritanism as the cause of the trials. Religious salutary was, of course, not the only reason for the panic. In many cases throughout the previous 50 years, church ministers were actually a moderating influence on New England society, calling for calm from the pulpit when accusations of witchcraft threatened to spread. Even had they not been, surely the colony would have faced more panics over the previous decades on the scale of Salem, had Puritanism been the sole factor. As it was, Puritan beliefs combined with the ever-present certainty that the supernatural influenced the material world. As in New England, so too in New England were local folk healers, popular sources of wisdom and help among the colonists. Often, these men and women were known to be able to predict the future and heal the sick through magical means. While these unsanctioned mystics were condemned from the pulpit as either charlatans or otherwise in league with the devil, they nevertheless remained prevalent in New England society. Folk healers were welcomed, as long as they provided a service and worked for the good of the community. The clear drawback here is that being popularly known as a wielder of supernatural forces meant that they were the first suspected after an ostensibly supernatural attack, especially during times of severe social tension. And with that flawless segue, let's examine how Massachusetts society suffered under the strain of earthly concerns. As we've already touched on, many of the colonists perceived that their way of life was under threat, and their prosperity was in decline, due to the actions of either the Crown, Indians, or religious opponents to the dominance of Puritanism. Added to these social and military dangers, the economic system of Massachusetts was leaving certain people behind, only adding to the significant social tensions that ran throughout the colony. A significant number of the first accusers of 1692 were orphans, their parents killed in the conflict with local Indians, and now they were living with relatives or friends of their late parents. Their prospects, both for marriage and for the rest of their lives, were greatly diminished. They could provide little in the way of a dowry, a vital part of arranging a beneficial marriage, and their newfound benefactors had other priorities than their new wards, It is perfectly understandable to look at their situation from their perspective and feel resentment and anger towards the events that had led to their diminished position. This was the problem. They had been taught that feeling this way made them perfect recruits for the devil's cause. He could use their resentment to slip through their defences of faith and use them to further his diabolic aims. Professor Godbeer suggests that while these girls, whose claims of possession would spark the trials, may have genuinely believed that they were victims of the devil, their possession gave them a legitimate method of expressing their grievances in a society that disproved of such self-pity. It's an interesting theory. We've seen before how personal belief can influence individuals to act in a way that doesn't make sense to modern ears. Like, Alexander Sussums of Essex. Sussums had volunteered to be searched by Stern during the East Anglian Panic, out of a genuine belief that he had been a witch for over a decade and a half. Through his guilt and negativity, combined with a genuine belief in the power of the devil and his mother's reputation for witchcraft, Sussums convinced himself that he too was a witch. Such was his conviction that he actively sought out the man who could, and did, order his arrest and trial for capital crimes. It is certainly not impossible that at least some of the young women who declared their possession did so out of a genuine belief that they were victims of the devil. This goes some way to explain why these young women came forward, but how were the people designated as witches chosen? Again, Not to labour the point, but in this regard the Salem trials differ very little from the previous cases in Europe. The men and women, and they were mostly women, largely came from a few demographics. Firstly, some were antisocial. Communal bonds were important in old Europe, and violators of these norms were harshly punished. And these were established communities that, while not easy lives by any means, had routines and traditions generations old. The province of Massachusetts Bay was a cluster of settlements, often connected only by dangerous and arduous roads on the edge of a mysterious, often hostile continent. The colonies were essentially at war with the local Indians and had been for decades. Those able to fight were expected to defend the community, and everyone knew someone who was either in a militia or had died in the endless raids and counter-raids. Townsfolk, were expected to help and receive help from one another, to share food and help with the harvest, to create vital products that the community needed and provide support to each other whenever requested. All of these behaviours were expected in the Old World too, of course, but their importance was heightened by the precarious nature of these early colonies. Thus, antisocial behaviour was particularly dangerous to the community. Selfishness, whether genuine or simply perceived, was seen as a liability, and suspicion of other faults soon followed. As with the old world, the economic prosperity of the communities played a role in the outbreak of the trials. Not simply between settlements, but within communities the perception of having prospered unfairly, especially while neighbours fell into poverty, added to the ever-present tension. Much like was argued by Macfarlane and Thomas about England, Too great a gap between the haves and the have nots, especially for relatively impoverished colonists, led to suspicion on both sides. The poor resented the richer for their wealth, while the wealthy resented that they were expected to support the poorer. While Macfarlane and Thomas were looking at a specific part of England, this model can be transferred to New England. Professor John Deimos, formerly of Yale University, found that of those suspects for whom he could determine social status, 73% were below the average wealth of their respective communities. An argument made by Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum in their book, Salem Possessed, is that Salem Village was a deeply dysfunctional community. Aside from the social and economic tensions within the village, which we have already covered, these tensions applied to external rivals, most importantly the nearby town. The villagers of Salem Village were legally bound and subordinated to Salem Town, and the townsfolk were rarely sympathetic to the needs of the villagers. Many of these concerns were economic, but not all. The church in Salem Town refused to allow the village to form a separate congregation, and instead insisted that they attend church in the town meeting house, some ten miles away. This particular problem would eventually be resolved by the building of a church in 1672, and the calling of a minister to attend it, but there were limitations. The minister could not conduct the full range of his duties, such as baptising newborns or disciplining lax attendance. Salem Village was only granted an independent congregation, which allowed the right to conduct these other services in 1689. Salem Village received their new pastor, Samuel Paris. This was unfortunate. Paris was, in the words of Godbeer, a failed and bitter merchant who resented those who succeeded in the world of commerce. He railed against the moral failings of Salem Town, and the port became an example of how far New England had fallen from the ideals of its founders. It was focused on the commercial. Rather than the spiritual, and had many residents who were not members of the church by virtue of its status as a prosperous trading hub. Boyer and Nissenbaum go so far as to state that simple geographic proximity to the town could associate a Salem villager with moral deficiency and untrustworthiness. A disproportionate number of those accused in 1692 lived on the side of the village closest to Salem town and a disproportionate number of accusers lived on the opposite side of the village. This may simply be a coincidence, and indeed Boyer and Nissenbaum's argument has been criticised since its publication, not only for the geographical element, but for its focus on Salem Village, when the witch hunt was a regional event. Yet the distinction between the village and the town highlighted by Salem Possessed is a useful addition to the theory of social and economic stresses. Salem Village's subordination to the town meant that they had no official means of resolving internal disputes for a number of decades, and the explosion of accusations occurred during a vacuum of power with the fall of the Dominion. Furthermore, Paris was a particularly zealous judge regarding who deserved to be welcomed into the congregation. For him, The true church was not open to just anyone who was said to be a good person. They had to prove that they were one of the elect, those saved by God as exceptions to mankind's evil nature. This required self-scrutiny, and the judgment of those already considered saved. Paris also refused to baptise children who were not born to at least one of the elect, Aside from these spiritual matters, Paris was controversial for more mundane reasons. Villagers squarrelled over his pay and the amount of land that had been granted to him on arrival. Paris, for his part, happened to judge those who spoke against him as unsaved. In 1691, this included a majority of the village committee, a group bound by family and marriage ties who opposed Paris' ownership of the controversial land and refused to tax their villages in order to fund his salary. In response, Reverend Paris preached against them. He was there to fulfil the orders of Christ, but it was, quote, the main drift of the devil to pull it all down. Paris's supporters, Salem Possessed argued, perceived their enemies as nothing less than evil, and the townsfolk those villagers aligned with fell under that umbrella. In the words of Brian Lebeau of the University of St. Mary, quote, in such sermons, Paris exacerbated the growing fear of one segment of his congregation of outsiders, those of Salem Town, but he also emphasised to an even greater extent by 1692 the threat of internal subversion posed by those in their midst who were linked to those outsiders. End quote. The first two accusers of the Salem Witch Panic were Paris's nine-year-old daughter Betty and his niece, Abigail Williams. In combination with economic and political factors, the ever-present misogyny in early modern society played a role in the outbreak. Not counting the societal expectations that may have pressed upon the first accusers, many of the stresses imposed on old-world widows and spinsters were doubly dangerous in the new. Unmarried women were often either independently wealthy itself a suspicious state of affairs in a society where men dominated the economy, or were the opposite, in poverty, with no way to sustain themselves, and therefore a burden. As mentioned, for communities in a perpetual state of low-level war like New England, these stresses were heightened. But simply being married, or having a male protector, was not enough to avoid accusations of sorcery. Professor Demos also found that over 80% of those charged with witchcraft throughout New England were women, married mothers as well as isolated women, and half the men were in some way related to a woman who had already been accused. The power vacuum brought about by the Glorious Revolution and the dismantling of the Dominion was not limited to the political hierarchy. Prior to 1692, witchcraft accusations in New England followed very similar lines to those in the old, The colonies, after all, operated under English law, which demanded that trials be handled by secular, fully trained authorities and forbade the use of torture or coercion in receiving confessions for any crime that wasn't treason or sedition. The success of these procedures in preventing an earlier witch hunt on the scale of the 1692 panics can be seen from the stats. Excluding Salem, there were 61 prosecutions for witchcraft in New England in the 17th century, with a maximum of just over a quarter ending in conviction and execution. Of these 16 convictions, four were won through confessions from the suspects. This means that only one-fifth of all witchcraft accusations that made it to court led to an execution without the defendant confessing. Much like we found when looking at ordinary trial proceedings in England, magistrates were willing to condemn a suspected witch to death only if the evidence was conclusive or the suspect confessed. Without the use of torture, confessions were rare, and with a crime like witchcraft, which tended not to leave much material evidence, the alternative to a confession was sworn witness testimonies. Like in England, testimony that was too extraordinary was often discounted, come to court with tales of flying witches or miraculous transformations, and you were likely to be dismissed as unreliable. Magistrates were concerned solely with testimony that proved the devil's involvement. This was hard to find without coercion. Those who attended court, brimming with anticipation that their attacker would be punished only to have their experiences dismissed as fanciful, well, they sometimes didn't give up. Accusers would collaborate, pooling their efforts and gathering new evidence against their suspect before returning to court. Some just kept doing this, with three colonists each being prosecuted three separate times, and another five facing trial twice each, only to be acquitted again and again. Gradually, as time went on, the number of prosecutions for witchcraft reduced. In the 1660s, there were 19 witch trials, but only six in the 1670s and eight in the 1680s. As was made evident in the 1690s, fears over witchcraft were not decreasing. Rather, colonists grew to realise that while trained legal and religious authorities held their positions, and to their standards of evidence, their chances of receiving a satisfactory outcome were slim. With the turbulence of the late 1680s and early 1690s, as a king was usurped, his colonial government toppled, and an uncertain relationship with London, these protections slipped away. So, what happened to the efficient, restrained judges and magistrates that had previously dispensed justice? Why were standards of evidence reduced? And why did torture and coercion rear its head in the 1692 trials, which were illegal? It's unclear, but it could simply be a combination of factors. Some could have lost their position with the collapse of the Dominion and the political upheavals that followed. Others could have naturally been replaced by successors who were less adamant about standards of evidence. Also likely is that the men who had dispensed justice over the previous decades remained in their positions. New England did not operate a circuit court system in the manner of England, and so many magistrates were not actually legally trained, and came from the communities where the accusations first came from. Their personal investment in the cases could, and likely did, influence their outcome. And as we saw with the Essex trials, a lack of judicial training meant that judges allowed evidence and procedures that would be thrown out of a more professional court. Those who were legally trained may have relaxed their standards due to the serious stresses being inflicted on New England society. The same pressures that may have caused the first accusations would have been just as effective in compelling the authorities to act. New England was in a perpetual state of low-level war the political scene had been overturned and the future uncertain, and the economic state of affairs was little better. As Mary Beth Norton, professor of history at Cornell, argues in her work, In the Devil's Snare, the Massachusetts leadership supported the trials, at least at first. She suggests that their willingness could be construed as an attempt to restore some semblance of authority after failing to repel Indian raids. This makes a certain sense, They had failed to effectively deal with the enemy without, but they could root out the enemy within, an enemy that was in league with both the mundane Indian enemy as well as the ever-present devil. To this end, they supported, tacitly or otherwise, the use of illegal physical and psychological torture to punish these enemies. The Salem witch hunt, in this view, was an exceptional part of a larger military and political crisis. Before we finish up, I have a few things to let everyone know about. Firstly, it's over a month since the last piece of content, and over three since the episode on the Pilgrims. I only checked that just now, and it's genuinely thrown me. I knew it'd been a while, but that's just too long. Sorry about that. The other thing to bring up is actually the reason for that delay, and I think it's a good reason. For those who follow the History of Witchcraft on Twitter and Facebook, this will be old news. But for the majority who don't, then I have an announcement. Two weeks from the day this episode comes out, the first episode of my new podcast, Pax Britannica, will be published. This is a narrative history podcast on the British Empire, beginning with the accession of our old friend James Stewart to the thrones of England and Ireland, and it's something that has been gradually usurping my spare time. The last month in particular has been incredibly hectic in order to prepare for the launch, and the history of witchcraft has suffered for it and it will keep suffering for it as it takes the third position in my priorities, behind my PhD and now Pax Britannica. I want to make clear now, however, that the History of Witchcraft is not finished. Episodes may become even fewer and further in between, if that's even possible, but the feed will remain up and new content will be arriving as and when I can manage. There are still far too many topics I want to cover to leave the History of Witchcraft forever. Hopefully, you are either interested in the history of the British Empire, or at least interested enough in my voice, and will join me with this new show. I'm very excited. It's a huge project, and I may come to regret starting it, but right now I cannot wait to launch. So, on the 10th of February 2019, the first episode will go live, Maybe not everywhere at once, because there are certain processes that are outside of my control, but if you follow the Facebook or Twitter feeds of Pax Britannica, then you can get a direct link to listen. That first episode will be followed by another in the same week, and there will be two episodes a week until at least the end of February. These will cover the situation in England, Ireland and Scotland upon the death of Elizabeth I, the English Adventures in Trade, Exploration, Piracy, and Colonisation during her reign, and an interview with Sir John Elliot, Regis Professor Emeritus of Modern History at Oxford University. Hopefully, all of this explains where I've been recently, mostly hunched over a computer, and intrigues you enough to give Pex Britannica a listen. Thanks always to my patrons, Hammer of the Witches, Executed Today, Witchfinder General Michelle G., my Inquisitors Elaine D. and R.A. Susie, And all of my demonologists and theologians. I plan to update my Patreon scheme with the launch of Pax Britannica, and it may mean that those titles change. They won't fit the theme, after all. All my patrons, including former patrons that I have details for, will be sent a download link to an early version of a Pax Britannica episode. Partly, this is a thank you for supporting me, to give you all a sneak peek, but also I'll welcome any feedback before the official launch. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the intro and outro music, and to you for listening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.